the podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. F at OMG. Third Fridays of every month at 7.30. Come to OMG on Savory 6th Street for DGIF. Thank gods, it's funny. Every third Friday at OMG. Check us out. Free shows, great drink specials, hilarious comics. Every Friday. San Francisco, gouging ya. Here we go. Free comedy with Mutiny Radio. You know you love us. Third Fridays of every month, OMG, 6th Street. Come on out with your friends, Mutiny Radio, G-G-I-F at OMG. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern?
became a brilliant and powerful leader of the anti-slavery movement. In 1852, he was asked to speak in celebration of the 4th of July. Fellow citizens, pardon me and allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us? And am I therefore called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were in human mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes that would, it, that would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation of the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour forth 
a stream, a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed and the crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. Take a trip with me in 1913 To Calumet, Michigan in the copper country I'll take you to a place called Italian Hall And the miners are having their big Christmas ball I'll take you in a door and up a high stairs Singing and dancing is heard everywhere I'll let you shake hands with the people you see And watch the kids dance around the big Christmas tree There's talking and laughing and songs in the air and the spirit of Christmas is there everywhere Before you know what you're friends with us all And you're dancing around and around in the hall You ask about work and you ask about pay They'll tell you they make less than a dollar a day Working their copper claims, risking their lives so it's fun to spend Christmas with children and wives. A little girl sits down by the Christmas tree lights to play the piano, so you gotta keep quiet. If you heard all this fun, you would not realize that the copper boss thug men are milling outside. The copper boss thugs stuck their heads in the door. One of them yelled and he screamed, there's a fire. A lady, she hollered, there's no such a thing. Keep on with your party, there's no such a thing. A few people rushed and there's only a few. It's just the thugs and the scabs fooling you. A man grabbed his daughter and he carried her down But the thugs held the door and he could not get out And then others followed a hundred or more But most everybody remained on the floor The gun thugs, they laughed at their murderous joke 
and the children were smothered on the stairs by the door. Such a terrible sight I never did see. We carried our children back up to their tree. The scabs outside still laughed at their spree. And the children that died there was 73. The piano played a slow funeral tune. And the town was lit up by a cold Christmas moon. The parents, they cried, and the miners, they moaned. See what your greed for money has done. And good morning. Mutiny Radio. Listeners, 10 o'clock on Saturday, you already knew that. You're tuned in to Labor and Love. Started out with that latest one with Jack Elliott. Jack Elliott singing in celebration. Woody Guthrie's birthday, which we celebrate this week. That was the 1913 massacre. Copper miners who were celebrating, many of whom were Italian, were celebrating Christmas with their families. And uh, a mob of Scabs rushed in, locked all the doors, and set the house on fire. Before that, we had James Earl Jones. We're talking about celebrating two Independence Days in July, the 4th of July in the U.S., of course, and French Independence Day, called Bastille Day, and we'll have a little background on what that is, what what's that about. We played the Marseillaise, the national anthem of France, written during those heady days of the French Revolution, and a monument to freedom-loving people everywhere. And uh, Frederick Douglass, read by James Earl Jones. Why should I celebrate the 4th of July? What is my f your 4th of July to me? I'll tell you, not a thing. Absolutely nothing. Douglass lays it out. Let's see if we can is labor and love where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else works for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, if you work. It's on the menu. 
never never let anything harm you. Not a Fritos, the things we buy on this show. Number one, pity the nation. Pity. Pity the nation and the people of sheep, shepherds and sheep. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars. Sages of silence, biggest on the airwaves. Pity the nation who raises not its voice except to play the conqueror. Bully as hero, aims to rule the world by force of arms. Pity the nation that knows no other language, no other culture. Pity the nation expresses money Pity the nation Robert Reich reminder. Your reminder that the richest 1% own half the stock market, the richest 10% own almost all. People brag about the stock market going up or down. I'm not talking about the economy that after the rape is more severe than the penalty for rape. That's when you need to do Okay, that's sort of our warm-up. Um, right now I want to talk a little bit about Bastille Day. I mean, are aware that there's a holiday in France about this time of the year. Vaguely what it's about. to be the National Assembly of the Party. On 20 June, vowed to write a constitution for the kingdom. Jacques Necker was dismissed by the king. Open government. He was dismissed. It provoked an angry reaction. Crowds formed, fearful of an attack by the royal army, the king's regiments, 
mercenaries in your service. Start to arm the general populace. Total monarchy. The king was absolutely taxing onerous. Lives of peasants miserable. Because the very rich were always celebrated. Fifty-five thousand people lived. Crowds formed, fearful of an attack. Early on July 14th, one crowd besieged the Hotel d'Invalides with firearms, muskets, cannon stored in the cellars. The same day, another crowd stormed the Bastille, the fortress covering the garrison. Indicate a reason about the Bastille held a captive outing. Happened on a big to think of the storming of the Bastille as revolt. Symbolic act. It was just a feel good moment. To this day, French people So happy Bastille Day. Hope everything's going well with you. And uh, get on to what's going on here and now. Of course, the big news is Hollywood strike. Demand respect. Join writers on strike. Grinding film and TV production deadline. The big deal about this is not only the writers. The writers had already gone out on Now it's actors, too. Stars of a movie. <coughs> Robert, the life of Robert Oppenheimer. Matt Damon. Walked off their debut. Hollywood, actors all over Hollywood now. Right. What are the issues? Television and film actors are heading to the picket line today after the National Board of the Screen Actors Guild voted unanimously to go on strike. The vote came after talks with a federal mediator aimed at hammering out a new labor contract failed at the 11th hour. 
More than 160,000 members of the union are taking part in the first major actor strike since 1980. The strike comes two and a half months after Hollywood screenwriters also walked off the job. This marks the first time since 1960 that actors and screenwriters have been on strike at the same time. As actors join writers on the picket line, they're demanding better pay and protections in an era where streaming services dominate and artificial intelligence threatens the livelihood of entertainers. SAG-AFTRA president Fran Drescher spoke Thursday. What happens here is important because what's happening to us is happening across all fields of labor by means of when employers make Wall Street and greed their priority and they forget about the essential contributors that make the machine run. We are the victims here. We are being victimized by a very greedy entity. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines. You cannot change the business model as much as it has changed and not expect the contract to change too. We're not going to keep doing incremental changes on a contract that no longer honors what is happening right now with this business model that was foisted upon us. What are we doing? Moving around furniture on the Titanic? It's crazy. So the jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. We are labor and we stand tall and we demand respect. And to be honored for our contribution, you share the wealth because you cannot exist without us. Thank you. That was SAG-AFTRA President Fran Drescher, who's well known for her role in the 1990 sitcom The Nanny. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents major television and film producers, accused the Actors' Union of walking away from negotiations. In a statement, AMPTP said its offer included historic pay and residual increases, as well as a, quote, groundbreaking AI proposal that protects actors' digital likenesses. Well, to talk more about the strike, we're joined by Shan Sharma. He's an actor who's part of the SAG-AFTRA negotiating committee. One note of disclosure, Democracy Now! employees are represented by SAG-AFTRA, but are covered by a different union contract than actors. 
Chan Sharma is joining us from Salt Lake City, Utah, where he's been filming the fourth season of The Chosen. Sean, welcome to Democracy Now! If you could respond, explain and elaborate the reasons for this strike. What are the demands? Well, first of all, we didn't ask for this strike. We've been negotiating in good faith for over a month. We had a truncated negotiation window to begin with, simply because of the Writers Guild negotiations and then the Directors Guild negotiations giving us just three weeks. We came in with a very fair package from the very beginning of the process, and it became clear to us pretty quickly that the representatives of our employers were not interested in negotiating with us in the same way, and they were stalling us. Uh, we granted a unprecedented 12-day extension to continue to negotiate, which they wasted, canceled meetings, and uh, seems like it was just a ploy to try to promote their summer movies before they knew we would eventually have to go on strike, because there seems to be a concerted effort by these companies to try to break the entertainment unions. Uh, DGA did not fight them in the way that the Writers Guild is, and now SAG-AFTRA is. And so they want to impoverish us in order to force us to accept a bad deal. And Chan Sharma, could you explain uh, the concerns around streaming as well as uh, artificial intelligence? Well, streaming, of course, this is the first year that streaming became the primary way that people consume their media. And our contracts are built for a very different time stemming from linear television on broadcast networks and cable. So there was a relationship between the shows needing to grab audiences and sell advertising, and we would have a participation in kind of a long tail of revenue that is generated by both the initial broadcast of a program and also the syndication of programs. Now, with streaming, they've gotten rid of any of those performance-based uh, tales of revenue that we participate in for a subscription fee that they collect, but we don't share any part of that revenue. So we have been squeezed down and shoved out of participating in a major way that our members support themselves financially. With artificial intelligence, they now have the technology and are fighting to try to alter the, the proposals we have to protect our members. They've tried to reconfigure and rewrite the proposals that we're just asking for for basic human rights protections to try to have the right to scan us, own our likeness in perpetuity, including after we're dead, use us in their movies without any consent, without any compensation to our performers, especially background performers. It's inhumane, it is dystopian, uh, and it's very frightening because we just saw through the pandemic that performers help our culture survive through, for example, a once-in-a-generation or once-in-a-lifetime health emergency. And at a time when our value is clearer to the community than ever, it seems our employers want to diminish us more than ever. Well, as we mentioned, you know, the last time that writers and directors were, were on strike was in 1960 at the time, just to give a sense mm -hmm. of uh, how much things have changed. Of course, there was neither streaming nor artificial intelligence. And Ronald Reagan mm -hmm. was the president of SAG, which had not yet merged with uh, uh, AFTRA. At the time, at the end of the strike, both unions had won health care benefits, pensions, and movie residuals. If you could comment on that and what you're still hoping may come out of this, when are talks set to resume? Well, we don't have any talks that are scheduled to resume because we just declared the strike yesterday. Okay. Two nights ago, we sat across from our employer's representatives and we said, we are ready to negotiate in good faith, but you have clearly not been operating in good faith. 
There were threats against our members made by, the or by their side of the negotiations, including threatening our careers. They lied to the press. They leaked things to the press to violate our media blackout. They insulted children and the rights of children on sets and in their health and pension contributions. It has been unconscionable what we've witnessed. It's like sitting across the table from the sociopathy that seems to be in charge of corporate America today, where uh, apparently CEOs can get performance-based bonuses, but employees that make all of that possible do not. Um, and so it's, uh, it, it's frightening the situation that we're faced with. Um, so there's no current talks that are, uh, that are scheduled. As for the 1960s, I wouldn't be an actor today if it wasn't for the health plan that was established at great cost by the sacrifices of our members in 1960, including them foregoing all of their residuals up until that point to establish the pension and health plans that we enjoy to this day. And that health plan has been gutted by our employers over the last 40 years to the point where members like the late, great Ed Asner, who used to be president of the Screen Actors Guild, he gave up all of his residuals before 1960 to establish the health plan, only for him to be removed from it at the age of 91 when the health plan was forced to make changes because our employers have not improved the employer pension and health contribution caps, the pension and health contribution caps that fund our health plans. So. Uh, we are in an existential moment, both with AI, but we're also in an existential moment to the basic rights of healthcare and the ability to pursue what we love and have retirement income after a prosperous career. Mashan, you mentioned, of course, uh, corporate America and the position of uh, prominent CEOs. Let's go uh, to uh, Disney CEO Bob Iger, who appeared on CNBC mm -hmm. Monday and criticized the Actors Union for calling a strike. It's very disturbing to me. I, you know, we've talked about uh, disruptive forces on this business and all the challenges that we're facing and the recovery from COVID, which is ongoing. It's not completely back. This is the worst time in the world to add to that disruption. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. So they're not being realistic? Uh, no, they're not. Why not? I can't, I, can't, I can't answer that question. So that was Disney CEO Rob Iger, who makes $27 million a year. He was speaking from Sun Valley, mm -hmm. Idaho, where he's attending a gathering that has been described as a summer camp for billionaires. So if you could uh, respond mm -hmm. to what he says and also explain, you know, people have a sense that Hollywood is all about uh, celebrity and enormous sums of money for performers. But I just want to quote um, what actor Denise uh, Cabanella said on Thursday, she said, it's a very, very small percentage of the 160,000-plus member union that can actually make mm -hmm. a living off the work that That's we correct. do. So <laughs> uh, if you could mm -hmm. talk about that, respond to what the Disney CEO said, and then what, in fact, how many people make a living wage from acting? Yeah, that, that uh, interview with Bob was incredibly uh, sad for anybody who works in entertainment uh, and especially those of us who create the work that allows for him to be paid as highly as he is paid. Um, it, it's, it's so tone deaf to think that someone like him who can, you know, get all the, I think in his contract he's going to get a 500 percent bonus to his base salary based on the performance of Disney stock, whereas the performers that give that company its value, they are refusing to allow us to participate in the revenue that we generate for them. These companies have engaged in an absolutely reckless spending on programming over the last few years, trying to compete for subscriptions, which we don't 
participate in any of that revenue. And now that they've overextended themselves and are starting to shift to a more advertising supported model, similar to television, uh, now they're claiming poverty simply because Wall Street is not demanding growth, it's demanding profitability. That is not our fault, we are the employees. Those risks that these companies have taken is on our backs. And for him to lecture us about being disruptive, they have disrupted the lives of all of our members who are trying to make a living in this industry. Shame on him for saying something like that. As our president said, the reason we have unions is because people do not do the right thing. And as somebody who's made his career out of entertainment, he should know better than to condescend to the incredible performers that give his company value. Uh, so I, I don't really know what else to say about that. Could you talk about the issue of audition pay, which has been required for over 86 years, but has never been put into mm -hmm. effect? Well, that's not actually true. In the early days of our union, everybody was under contract. Almost all of our performers were contract oh, players gosh, at MGM or Paramount or Disney, et cetera, which means not only were they paid for their auditions, they were also paid uh, for a weekly salary. They were also developed with acting classes, dancing classes, movement, et cetera, a, a great comprehensive classical training because we were assets of these studios. When the Olivia de Havilland decision challenged those contracts, those contract systems and what used to be known as the star system, the studio star system, started to end. Uh, for, for independent performers who weren't under contract, we were entitled to compensation for the creative labor that we put into our auditions. But now, since uh, the studio star system has gone away, virtually none of us are under contract. The audition pay provisions of our contract ensure that the creative labor that we put into the pre-production process of productions, where we actually interpret the material, help them see the writing in a new way, it leads to changes in the storytelling, sometimes they'll rewrite the part, rewrite the script, so we contribute our intellectual property to the pre-production process, and that was always meant to be compensated for, but today, we are now forced to carry the burden of the casting process because they're no longer doing in-person casting. They're forcing us to tape ourselves in our own homes, using our friends and family as also free labor for these auditions, and they expect us to do it all without compensation. Our members were not aware that these provisions were in our contract because we have a contract literacy challenge within our union where our members do not read and are not educated properly about their contracts. We are changing that. But none of that changes the fact that not only are we doing the technical labor that casting used to do, we're doing the creative labor we've always done, and now our friends and family are being treated as free employees for our employers as well to read with us for our auditions. So audition pay is a very important way that we can inject almost a billion dollars into our working class members of the union, which by the way, your previous question, only 12.5% of our members qualify for health insurance. And the qualifying threshold for health insurance is only $26,470. That means 87% of our members do not earn over $26,000 a year. And that's a shocking thing for the, the performers of 170,000 strong performers we have that do most of the TV and film work that is professional that the AMPTP produces. Thanks so much, Sean Sharma. Uh, Sean Sharma is an actor and a member of the SAG-AFTRA negotiating committee. Coming up, Gray Anderson, editor of the New Book. Okay, there it is. There's the uh, Hollywood strike from the point of view of the workers. And of course, uh, there was not an in-depth discussion of the place of AI and 
AI threatens to replace any any working You're a producer and you get a show to be written for you by artificial intelligence good enough. Of course you're gonna do it. You're gonna try to do it. What does that mean? It's like saying that uh, automation automation. Automation isn't going to hurt anybody. It's going to provide for progress. Progress for whom? And if you're in a capitalistic system where you have to work and yourself and maintain your family life, what's going to happen? Something in, uh, built into our system? Pick up? Of course not. are hard at work trying to break down any impulses It's only the first salvo. Well, we'll be taking on these issues today. Meanwhile, we're all aware of the forest fires. Again, it's been 400 fires burning in Canada, including the air for miles around Detroit. On the popular resistance.org. Detroit, of course, is far north, and surrounded on two or three sides Indian territory. It's all part of the same area. On the 29th, the air quality in Detroit was among the worst in the world. Outside, it smelled like burnt plastic, almost like trash. W. works at a General Motors co-workers experienced coughing, runny nose, watery eyes, trouble breathing. Them didn't even acknowledge much less offer any protection. Everybody just had to go about it their own way, he said. We can all see it and smell it, but what are we going to do about it? The wildfires, drought, floods, and scorching heat disrupt the supply chain. Logistics industry is starting to worry about the impact on their profits. Workers are the ones bearing the brunt, forced to work through extreme weather events and 
induced by climate change that are getting more frequent and severe. Wildfires in Canada have spread hazardous smoke through the U.S. East Coast and Midwest. Semi-regular wildfires throughout the West Coast have produced what are known as fire seasons. Outdoor workers like those in delivery, construction, and farming, artists, and front lines of the climate crisis, some workers, employees, Negligence. Air quality in New York City is four eighty four being above categorized hazardous. Besides the immediate effect of burning eyes and coughing. Particulate matter. The lungs and heart triggering asthma. Company didn't do anything. One worker said about UPS. It's only customers who were concerned. Customers offered me masks. Customers offered me. Local eight oh four numbers did for themselves what the company should have done. Distributed KN95 masks to workers in Brooklyn and Jeff Donnelly and package delivery all backed up. He was still making deliveries families to flee the Caldor fire. Fire blazed across Nevada and Northern California, burning more than 220,000 UPS is fire isn't coming our way. The company lied, he said. Tell me they had a plan, but they didn't. UPS handed out surgical masks, not high-quality N95. Even as the AQI shot up to a record high, seven. AQI at 3,500 in California boosted Donnelly emphasized the UPS suffers no dodging They say the company must provide masks or respirators, but if they don't, there's no penalty. There's no penalty. Why have the language in the law? Work outside, there's really no escape, a postal employee said. The actual solution is if the AQI is 300, 500, we should just be able to go home. At any rate, check it out. Time for you. 
step in and take over here. Companies don't even protect their own I was a bouncing up and down like popcorn a popping had a breakdown. Sort of a nervous bust down of the uh, mechanism there, some kind of engine trouble. His way up yonder on the mountain road, I wasn't feeling so very good, and I give this rolling forward a shove, and I was a gonna coast as far as I could. Commenced rolling. Picking up speed, and there was a hairpin turn, and I couldn't make it. Man alive, I'm telling you, the fiddles and the guitars really flew. That Ford took off like a flying squirrel, and it flew halfway around the world. Scattered wives and children's all over the side of that mountain. got to old Los Angeles broke, so that gum hungry we thought we'd choke, and I bummed up a spud or two, and my wife cooked up a tater stew. Fed the kids a big bait of it, but that was mighty thin stew. And that gum thin, you could pretty near read a magazine through it. If it had been just a little bit thinner, I've always believed. That stew had been just a little bit thinner. Some of our senators could have seen through it. How did they treat you when you got to California? You people in, in these old jalopies and broke down trucks and everything. How, how did they welcome you with bands and banners <laughs> and everything? How was it? Uh, not with music bands. They had a different kind of band that fitted on your legs. 13 links on it, and, uh, you know, 
had another kind of uh, orchestra. They called it the Pea Patch Papas. And uh, what would that be? Pea Patch Papas. Well, if you out of work, see, of course, it's highly unsanitary to be out of work. What I mean by that is that uh, in most towns all over the country, it's a jailhouse offense to be unemployed. And uh, in that country, they enforce that when they take an ocean. In other words, uh, when you come to that country, they found different ways of putting that vag law on you and putting you either to working free in some pea patch or garden or washing dishes or something. But anyway, you was always working and you wasn't getting nothing out of it. No, they didn't greet us with bands or nothing. They asked us questions when we come across the line, asked us where we was from and all about it. Then uh, they tried to turn a lot of us back, the hobos, the boys that's riding the freight trains and hitchhiking down the road that didn't have any money in their pockets that we knew. We remembered the old tractor sitting back down there covered up with dust, the cows standing up on top of the barn and looking out across that dead sea of dust. And said, no, mister. Rather be in jail here than sitting down there on that it farm. It was a matter of having the money, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a matter of having the money. That's it. Oh. They don't ask you where you got it, how you got it, who you got it off of, or nothing else. Just so you've got the dole name, boy. That's the main thing. You can gamble for it, lie for it, steal for it, bum for it, beg for it. Do anything else in the world for it. You can even chase people out of their house and home for it. I made up a little song about that. <laughs> All this This is an old song written by Woody Guthrie back in the Depression days. Bed with a woman just singing the blues, heard the radio telling the news. storm came and, and ruined their farms and <clears throat> houses and everything. They had to get out. Figured they couldn't do worse. So long, it's been good to know. Moving west. They got out there. They found all these uh, border police at the California border telling them to go back. We can't go back. Man, you can't stay here. This little song tells about uh, what happened to him. Do re mi. Here we go.
sands they roll, get out of that old dust bowl. Think they're coming to a sugar bowl, but here's what they find. Well, police have port of entry, see. Boys, you're up for 14,000 for a day. Hey, you ain't got that dough, Ray.
nació en la tierra, el hijo del sol nació.
the downs there in uh, Galinia. That's a maquiladora in Spain. Rachel. Maquiladora in Everest. What feathered thing born on the border? Linea. Before that, we had Rye Cooter and Paco Jimenez with the Woody Guthrie song, Do Re Mi. If you ain't got the Do Re Mi, boys, if you ain't got the Do Re Mi, that's the beauty of Oklahoma, Mississippi, Tennessee. Woody Guthrie. song about maquiladora well no not the maquiladora about the do re mi and before that we had Woody himself singing the dust bowl blues the plight of people who came from the midwest and the southeast mainly when their farms were blown away by the dust bowl and and the depression resulted in farms being foreclosed upon, people's life's work, the life's work of generations in many cases, heading west to see if California might give them more hope. And this is what happened. They were met by police, in some cases by Los Angeles City policemen. Big guys in big Nazi boots. Uh, okay, so it's pause time, and I want to read a message from one of our neighborhood resources. Please, if you have never gone to eat at San Jalisco on 20th and South Point, do yourself a favor. Como México no hay dos. Y como San Jalisco tampoco. For over 40 years, the Barra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas? Tacos? Chilaquiles? The ultimate in birria, the best salsa and chips in town brought to you before you order. How about your favorite vegetarian omelets? Vegetarian omelets, burritos and tacos. They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Van Ness in the very heart, el mero mero of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco where the food tells you you're in Mexico. Okay, and please do. And when you go, tell them that Bill sent you from Labor and Love, the B, from Labor and Love Radio on the mutiny. Take a little break.
What good is melody? What good is music? If it ain't possessing something sweet. Now it ain't the melody and it ain't the music. There's something else that makes this tune complete. Yes, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. The master Louis Armstrong then. Thing, if it ain't got that swing. All right, let's see if we can continue our history of the wobblies. We reached the point where they talked about wobbly culture. the party developed, IWW developed, developed over the years and won some big strikes. Then was hammered to death by the federal government. Hungry, cold, wet, lousy, and look out across the country and see the lights in a house, the people gathered around the table. Be all wet and look at this beautiful light in the distance or a coke by as you roll along in a boxcar or wait for another train to pass.
Frank Victoria Worker is the most remarkable body of men that could ever be developed on any planet. A job, a big job, a bridge is to be built. As it becomes known that this big job is going to take place, men of the various skills from the remote corners of this country will come to that job. In those days, we had to fight the railroad crew. They were petty racketeers. They would come along, the engineer, the fireman, the two brakemen, and the conductor with the pick handles in their hand, and they would make everybody donate either a dollar to ride a division or your pocket watch or your pocket knife. The Wobblies put a stop to that when we beat the hell out of a few dozen train crews. They got the message real quickly that they weren't going to uh, shake us down in order to ride a train through. I wanted to have the experience of bumming a ride on a freight train because I'd heard so much about it. And the IW boys traveled that way. So I did take a freight train from Chicago to St. Louis. And I had to show the IWW car to get a ride. The, uh, the, the trainmen would not accept you without one. So they have a lot of trouble with hijackers. The hijackers would... Uh... I start at the back of a train and rob the people and, and unload them. They were particularly looking for organizers because they might have $1,000 or more of funds, organization funds in a satchel. So they were in great danger to the organizers. So they organized this flying squadron. I was elected to the flying squadron. Our job was to, to get the hijacks. The hijacks would come in. They'd generally work in three and four together, all armed with 38s or 45s, mostly 38s, and they'd stick up a hundred harvest hands in a boxcar. They had a rope ladder that they come down over the top with and into the freight trains, and if somebody got a little smart with them, they would give them a push, and the train would be going 30, 40 miles an hour, and they would fall under the freight train and be ground to bits. That was known as greasing the rails, and it was quite a common factor. We took the hijacks, many of them, and we took a razor, gem razor blade, and cut IWW, I on the forehead and W on each cheek, and put permanganated potassium into it, and it marked them up. We were rebellious slaves. Got to be able to get that in. Uh, we were rebellious slaves, and there is no more. Soldiers that never had an axe in their hand, they didn't know they could lost if they walked around a big stump. They organized the spoof division. So that's the way they used the army as strike makers. They called them the loyal legion of loggers. We called them the lousy long-legged loggers. <laughs> Wave the flag with one hand and rob you with the other. So we, we soon defeated them their efforts because they were so patently on the side of the company. Sometimes the superintendent of the mill would be president of the local. So the whole forces of the government, the army, whatnot, was set against the IWW, and frequently they would be taken and put into, like, stockades to lock them up. So the idea occurred to transfer the strike back to the job. The strike on the job, in my estimation, was the best tactic that ever came out of the IWW. Better than the sit-down strike later, because the workers stayed on the job and got their pay, 
but they slowed production down sometimes 50%. And that soon brought the bosses to their knees, quicker than anything else ever did. One of the things they would do, they would uh, work eight hours, and everybody would walk off the job. The boss would, uh, some of them would say, hey, we worked 10 hours on this job. Well, that's all right. We worked eight today. We'll work two more for you tomorrow. The last of all to give him was warehouse. We were striking for the eight-hour day, and we got it. And the Knights of Labor had failed. The AFL had failed. We made it, the IWW. The town of Bisbee, Arizona, down in the dark of the Copper Queen Mine. There's blood on the ore and miners line. The roads that never saw sun nor sky. Roads that never saw sun nor sky. Down of Disney, you don't sleep easy. Off in the earth will tremble and roll. When the earth gets restless, miners die. Bone and blood is the price of war. Bone and blood is the price of war. By summer of 1917, there were not only 50,000 IWL loggers on strike, but 40,000 copper miners in Montana and New Mexico and Arizona. out across the, the alleyway, I guess you'd call it. Well, here was a fellow with a gun looking at a padlock on a, a bachelor's quarters. And was bachelors, a lot of bachelors in Bisbee those days. And there was a bachelor that had some cabins behind us, and, and this fellow was looking at this padlock and had this big gun. There was a bunch of people right this in Park Avenue coming down towards me because I had to cross that street. And I say, Mane, what is wrong with Milan, Milan? What is wrong? What is it all about? You know, naked, bleeding. Oh, he says, we don't know nothing ourselves. There was boarding house up here. And they throw him four o'clock in the morning out of the beds and throw him in this line. Get it. There was just like come from the sky at that moment, just like lightning or, or thundering. But now they come back with the truck and took my husband. And my husband was spitting blood that day. You know how they get excited. Everybody would be asked, what, 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 what? He said, you know how the people are. But if we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. But then the truck come there, one of the paid scab. 
and they throw them on the truck. Didn't have shoes tied or hats or nothing out of the bed. And I asked our render. We had a rental house down there. I says, I says, my God, please don't be so rough with him. I said, can't you see how he feels? He got killed the gun, you know, those long guns. Knocked it on the floor. We haven't got time. Get ready. It's everything like an army going to be ready to jump. On the roof, they were a machine gun. They're going to shoot if anybody's going to jump from train. time that they uh, stopped the industries, uh, they, uh, more of our boys must die on the western battlefield. And that was continually harped on the, through the press. The media took, it, uh, took that up. Uh, and it was in there until everybody was convinced that a member of the IWW had a, had a uh, uh, spear, uh, headed tail and wore horns. In 1917, it was a revolutionary time in world history and uh, challenge to the West of the Western Revolution, of the Socialist Movement, of the Left Paper Movement, was one which put fear into the hearts of the owners of property and the defenders of the status quo. I was working in the camp when the Russian Revolution started. And they had terrific arguments every night in the bunkhouses. The Wobblies did among themselves over the Russian Revolution. The chairman, he'd get up and open the meeting, and he'd generally bang a cork shoe on the table to bring everybody to attention. And he'd holler, he'd say, gather around here, fellow workers, we've got a goddamn revolution to talk about tonight. <laughs> so they'd be discussing the Russian Revolution. This chairman, he was one of the pro-political faction He'd get up and say something like this. He'd say, well, 
The Ruskies beat us to it. We've got to re-examine what we're doing and see where we're short in this country. Because the fact remains, they've done the trick and we're still talking about it over here. Then another one from the opposition side would grab him by the shirt and say, sit down, you big hoosier, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so it was fast and furious and generally break up with fist fights, you know, between the two factions. Between the anarchists and the communists, there were two of them were battling over the wobblies in there. Well, after the communist movement came into being in 1917, on the world scene, that is, well, that split the wobblies wide open. The IWW was weakened on two fronts at once. At the same time as they were being torn by internal conflicts, the hostility to the IWW for their efforts to improve their own conditions and during the war reached a feverish pitch. The IWW were blamed for everything. And therefore, the government moved against them. They raided the old hall, carried everything in the middle of the street and burned it. Just as I got near the hall, the secretary come the other way to open the hall, and we both got to the door together. And we didn't need a key to open it. It was broken in, our furniture all smashed up, typewriters and uh, books and everything was uh, all over the floor. trials in the IWW, I think three wartime trials, under the same kind of indictments. Um, but the Chicago trial was the most conspicuous because all the lead leaders were there, everybody. They scooped up everyone that had any prominence at all in the organization. It was one of the great historic trials in free speech in the United States. The lawyer who handled the IWW case was a very skillful man, George Vanderveer. I thought he made such a good case of the legitimate activities of the IWW. Your Honor, these men here are guilty of nothing more than belonging to a labor union. A labor union that recognizes that this war is not being fought to keep the world safe for democracy, but merely to expand industrial markets. There are 101 men, I think the number was, on trial under the federal law concerning obstruction of recruiting and enlistment. And it's all based on tally of speeches and on what had written in the IWW press. There were no other charges, but those words, those language, those uh, condemnations of the war were construed to discourage people from joining the army. And that was the theory of the government, completely upset the appellate court. They were all convicted and given very savage sentences. But uh, that was war hysteria. I have no doubt that they hoped that they would destroy the IWW by these prosecutions.
these men, they did serve time in prison for something that they trumped up on them and to, uh, to get rid of them. And when that, while they were in prison, that was one of the means that ways that they had of breaking up the IWW. Bill Haywood and others who were out on bail in the uh, on appeal had skipped the country. They'd gone to Russia, a half a dozen of them. That was a very tragic thing for the fellows that were left because they had to pay a very high sum of money. But he went because it was, it was, the refuge was offered to him and he just couldn't face any long term in jail. Naturally, there was an air of sadness but at the same time, there was also this feeling, and I, I recall it very well, that this is not the end, but the world, the struggle will have to go on, and regardless of what happens to our members, we who are on the outside must keep on trying to do the work that they had started. And we had a large moral issue with the IWW boys in getting them out, because the government said, you've got to apply for a parole or a pardon on these papers, because that's the way we do business. And these papers say you were convicted. And you've got to admit that you were convicted of a crime. And these fellows said, never will we admit that we were convicted of a crime. It wasn't only the wobblies they took it out on. It was the trade unionists in general that they took it out on. But everybody was a wobbly to them uh, that wanted anything at all. Although most of the members of the IWWs were Americans. There were a considerable number of foreigners who were deported by Attorney General Amos L. Palmer in the so-called Palmer Raids. From their lopsided faces, sloping brows and misshapen features may be recognized the unmistakable criminal type. They'd raid their homes and pinch these guys. They were looking for foreigners, and they couldn't, they got very few foreigners amongst the Wobblies. They picked up poor foreigners that didn't belong to any organization at all and deported them uh, out of the country on suspicion that uh, they were, uh, were Wobblies or socialists. A day go wild, wild over me. Although I've never done them harm that I can see. I'm as gentle as a lamb, but they take me for a ram. They go wild, simply wild over me. Oh, the cop, he went wild over me. And he held his gun where everyone could see. Uh, he was breathing rather hard when he saw my union card. He went wild, simply wild over me. How uh, will the roses grow wild over me? Uh, when I've gone into the land that is to be. When the soul and body part, in the stillness of my heart, will the roses grow wild over me? By that time, already hundreds and hundreds of IWWs had been arrested elsewhere. That we kind of took an attitude, well, if you take, oh, why don't you take me too? You understand? So we kept on organizing. Uh, wobbly delegate, a fellow said to him after he'd written out a card to him, he said, what's this card entitle me to? He said, if they catch you with it, the delegate told him it entitles you to two to 14 years in San Quentin or Folsom. It was about 10 o'clock at night. I was still at the typewriter. Mrs. Stealing, my wife, had already retired when there was a knock on the door and there was a, 
After I had been in prison and returned and had, uh, still was under surveillance by the government, I could not be the same IWW that I was before. The IWW lingered on for several years after they had gone to prison, but it wasn't effective because we had several, you know, to come along and try to and did what they could, but the opposition and the odds were just against us. Thank you, Your Honor. Now, members of the jury, this IWW, these Wobblies, have been charged with conspiracy to violate the law by means of force. They pose as a labor union, taking orders from Mr. Haywood, a tyrannical sovereign who sends his messengers across the country to carry out strife and disorder. Make no mistake, their purpose was to paralyze and destroy this country so completely that none of you would be safe, no value you hold sacred would be untouched. This government finally woke up and put a stop to the scheme that this trial has made absolutely apparent. And now it is up to you, members of the jury, to put the end to this plot by finding each and every one guilty as charged. That'll do it for our uh, history of the Wobblies. I mean, somebody might ask, why do you keep telling that? have bad endings. All this work that was done by the Wobbly so was was a true movement. These were people who wanted to make their lives better by organizing where? In the land of the free and the home of the brave with justice and liberty for all. All that was false. Not to make us feel you know, more depressed and more hopeless, but to give us hope. People rose up and some of the Tactics they used are still available to us today. There's never for a minute been a pause in the war between capitalism today in Hollywood.
talked about Starbucks. What's going on all these places? So the idea is not to take away hope. The idea is to give you There's history. Two minutes. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1918. That was the day that went down in U.S. history as the Great Train Wreck. The wreck occurred at Dutchman's Curve in Nashville, Tennessee. During World War I, the train industry was bustling across the nation. Trains carried troops as well as workers to factories to support the war effort. On that fateful morning, the Nashville, Chattanooga, and St. Louis Railway number one train was heading east to Nashville from Memphis. One of the passengers on that train was George Scott. At 18 years old, George was traveling to the DuPont plant to make gunpowder for the war. He was just one of many workers on the train heading to work at the plant. The number four train was traveling west. Both of the trains were running late. As the number four train approached Dutchman's Curve, it received an all-clear signal from the signal tower. But then the tower switched the signal to a red stop warning. It was too late. The train was barreling ahead on a collision course with the number one train. At 7.20 a.m., the two trains collided head-on at a rate of speed between 50 and 60 miles an hour. 101 people were killed. 171 more were injured. It was the deadliest train disaster in U.S. history. The young George Scott recalled the horrible scene, saying, I had to raise up the window, and the glass was falling all over everywhere, and I finally got out of there, and I wandered out past a cornfield, best I can remember, and I run across one of the trainmen lying there. In the aftermath of the tragedy, thousands of people helped in the rescue effort. Today's Labor History in Two brought to you in memory of Carol Hillman, a passionate friend of workers and volunteer of the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. This is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1894. That was the day that labor leader Eugene V. Debs was arrested for supporting the strike of Pullman Palace Car Company workers. In May, the workers who made the popular train sleeping cars had walked off the job. George Pullman had slashed the workers' wages but kept the rents in his company town steady. The striking workers called on Eugene Debs to support their strike. Debs had made a name for himself in the labor movement by successfully founding the American Railway Union. The union joined together railroad workers in an unprecedented force of solidarity across job types. In June, the union voted to boycott Pullman in support of the train car makers. As rail traffic ground to a halt, the federal government moved in to end the strike. Federal troops were called out. A federal court issued an injunction against Debs and the boycott. The basis for Debs' arrest was the claim that the boycott interfered with the delivery of the U.S. mail by the train. Debs served a six-month jail sentence in Woodstock, Illinois. His case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which decided in favor of the injunction. 
When Debs was released from prison, he delivered a speech he called Liberty. In it, he declared, quote, the people have seen the money power practicing at every art of duplicity, growing more arrogant and despotic as it robbed one and crushed another, building its fortification of the bones of its victims and its palaces out of the profits of its piracy. The Pullman strike and the American Railway Union were crushed and injunctions became a powerful tool against the labor movement. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Okay, Rick Smith with um, Labor History in Two. Flat black plastic. Um, so I reiterate the Please remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else works for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table, that is, where you work. Never, but never, in any art here, by friend of labor. And remember, the reason we have unions is because people do not So, the talk. Swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, 
Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on mutinyradio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites comedy. Oh, pre-sign by Venmoing two to five dollars at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio Studio and Gallery Performance Space, two seven eight one Twenty First Street, at Florida Street, in the deep, deep, deep Mission. Every Monday at six p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic. And see comics work out new material for free. For free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. When I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the Rhino, I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate two to five dollars on, hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses, the print's too small, hold on. Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown in on. It's nap time. The year is 2023. Oh, I wish that laughter had value and the unexpected laugh was priceless. Worry not. True entertainment has brought us a savior in whosthatlive.com. Oh, finally, an escape from the apocalyptic nightmare I live in. You can go to whosthatlive.com and buy comedy tickets. And you're in a raffle, I guess. True, 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 true production. First Sundays of every month, join your friends from Mutiny Radio at Hotel Utah on 4th and Bryant. 5 p.m. first Sundays for free comedy. Is San Francisco getting you down? Is everything too expensive? Not first Sundays of the month at Hotel Utah for free comedy with Mutiny Radio. Incredible lineups every month with the best comedians from around the Bay. Join your friends trying to keep things affordable for free comedy first Sundays of the month. 
Hotel Utah, 4th Street. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live at 2781 21st Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog-friendly. Dog fr- we are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog-friendly. A dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. <laughs> dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. <laughs> 278 121st Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. Here in Dot SF. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed fest right here at the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need and ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That, that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. My new Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday, or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine! And even in the drizzle, but not too much. And Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations on Eventbrite. Talk in public schools. In a tri-level dual world of stand-up comedy. Laughter has value, and the unexpected laugh is priceless. Who is that live.com? Comedy local shows on sale now. Everyone that. Comedians, poets, and special guests. Welcome. Like morphine, codeine, and heroin are derived from the opium plant. But some 
are opioid overdose deaths have increased nearly 200 percent.